I chose, Hespira said again, and Horion believed her. So Hespira took leave of her mother and returned with him to the caves of the sacred mountain, and the vines of Hespira's mother grew over Merodite's temple. When Hespira left the mountain to visit her mother, as she did from time to time, the vines were dormant, but otherwise they grew and grew until the mortar was all picked to dust and the temple fell in on itself, and nothing was left but a pile of stones covered in green leaves and red flowers. Megan Wayland Turner, I will pay you 20 bucks to show me some happy in-laws. <laughs> I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to get you through the wait for book six. It's March 24th, 2019, and we're ready for spring, like our firstborn is due to come back from the underworld. Except instead of our firstborn, it's the convenient accessibility of soft serve ice cream. As soon as the snow melts, I expect a chocolate vanilla twist with rainbow sprinkles to spontaneously manifest in my hand, which is the most New England thing that we have ever said. <laughs> We're betraying our location. Although I think Massachusetts is a state with the highest ice cream consumption in the winter, so how New England is this really? We're betraying Massachusetts by waiting until spring. Ice cream over the winter. True. The soft serve is what yes. returns in the spring. They don't sell that here in the in the winter, except at the <gasps> mall. Right. True. How could I forget? <laughs> it's spring for Eugenides too, and he's marking it with a picnic and a story. The Queen of Atolia, Chapter Nine, in which everybody would be having a nice meal if Eugenides didn't have to go and make it weird. So, finally, in this chapter, we get, like, a restful, peaceful interlude where no one is at risk of dying, and... <laughs> Even though there are guards with crossbows. <laughs> I totally forgot about them. I rescind that comment. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is as, as peaceful as we're gonna get pretty much ever again. Yeah. There will always be a guard with a crossbow aimed at you off on some sort of ledge, <laughs> but you can enjoy your picnic anyway. So in this chapter, Eugenides and Edis go to collect the magus from uh, the hunting lodge in in the coastal hills. And it says that uh, the hunting retreat was a summer home for the rulers of Edis, and it held happy memories for Edis, even though it was uh, kind of like rustic and had no glass in the windows. So this just got me reflecting more on the differences between Edis and Atolia as mm -hmm. countries, because... Uh, you never get the sense that Atolia would ever feel secure enough to, first of all, go on any sort of vacation. <laughs> and second of all, uh, Edis has relatively few guards in this chapter. Like, you kind of get a count in, um, in the clearing when several of the men and the captain are on one side of the clearing and then two others are circling. So, like, six to ten guards, maybe. Mm -hmm. So, that just got me thinking more about... Edith's traditions of, of royalty. Yeah, and, and Edith, like Helen as an individual, is kind of an outdoorsy person. Mm -hmm. She likes to go up into the mountains. She likes to hunt. And so she's very much a, a representative of her country in that way. Something that happens when they first get there is that when they get there, the Magus is out. And they've just let him go off hiking with one guard. And he's gone out to collect samples of plants, which he draws. And Eugenides and Helen talk to each other about how they didn't know that the magus had an interest in botany and jen jokes that he's probably trying to develop a poison to kill them and they ask the magus about it later and he says that it's for a friend of his who's not well enough to travel and relies on the magus to send him samples 
And so it's not his interest in botany, it's somebody else's. And I am convinced that this is important. I don't remember, but he's up to something. I don't remember this, but I swear to God, it's... I, uh, and he, he goes somewhere, you think he goes somewhere with this, like, you mentioned earlier uh, that you think he's, like, using it to send messages back to Sunus or, yeah, like, like something like that? where he is or something, like, his, even though they, they know where he is, I don't, yeah. I have no idea how it's important, but it's important. <laughs> and maybe I've just reached the point where I'm assigning a significance to everything, like, it has to be a conspiracy. Well, that's fair, though, because almost everything in these books does have some sort of relevance. Like, there aren't any really details except for philonikes that don't come back again (laughs) or that don't have some significance in themselves like the ring they they mention it and they talk about it and then they come back to it true it feels like you're supposed to be paying attention yeah because if it were just a random detail that never surfaces again why draw the reader's attention back to it later and the magus is smart i guess we'll find out Ooh. <laughs> we've, we've read these books multiple times before and we're still like what's gonna happen with this thing another thing that i thought was cool is uh something that i don't really think about a lot usually is how in these books they're always coming across ruins mm-hmm. of old temples and old buildings and that's something that these books have in common with uh lord of the rings which is a series that it's otherwise not very similar to at all is the sense that we are living on top of the remains of a previous civilization yeah and so you get the sense that what is going on now will one day itself be ruins which of course we already have a sense of because this is so similar to what we consider to be our collective past and uh so you you get a a a sense of that cyclical uh, feeling and the the history and uh the the way that like we're kind of witnessing uh a myth yeah mm. uh you just got me thinking about it's gonna be pompeii in another book <laughs> like yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. we might get pompeii ruins at the end of this Ooh. Uh, i'm sorry to bring that up but <laughs> i don't like that no and it's interesting that a lot of the ruins we see in this series are religious. They're mostly temples. Yeah, and they're connected or, to stories. Right. That was something that um that I wanted to point out about this myth, because um, also the majority of this chapter is taken up with the myth of Hespera and Horion. Um, so the three of them, Edis, Eugenides, and the Magus, they picnic at the site of this ruined temple that was a temple to Merodite that Hespera's mother destroyed with vines. And that was something that brings the myth a lot closer to them, that it's not just mm-hmm. some, um, it's not some far off hypothetical, it's like their culture thinks this really happened yeah. right here. I mean, like, most people are still like, myths aren't real, but for the characters who do have an actual personal relationship with the gods and goddesses, like... Yeah, and it's it a brings it that, that much closer. Like, the way that religion is in Edis is so based on place. Right. There's not a ton about the war in this chapter, but they do have a conversation about how uh, Edis has now created... Uh, there was a two-way war, and now it's a three-way war. Mm-hmm. And the Magus is kind of 
bemused by that. Like, you made it worse. <laughs> uh, but Edith says that they've now changed it to a war we might lose to a war we might survive. Mm-hmm. And that's what it's going to be about for Edith from now on. It's not about winning. It's just about surviving. Right. Because Sunus is focused on hegemony and Atolia is as it goes on, it sort of appears. Mm-hmm. And Edith is just trying to get everyone to leave them alone in their <laughs> mountains and just get enough crates to survive. And and of course, how much of the religion of Edith is based on place is it, that it makes the the upcoming disaster so much more tragic. Right. Because as we, if it needed to be any more tragic. I know. Like, how could it get worse? It can get worse. <laughs> you thought it couldn't, but here we are. <laughs> Which, so that also makes me wonder about, um, we know that before the invaders brought their own religion to Atolia and Sunus, Atolia and Sunus were also, um, devotees of the Adesian gods. Yeah, so, because they are truly one land! Yeah! That can maybe bring a more hopeful spin to this, is that even though the Adesian religion was centered in the actual physical place of Edis, it was expandable to the rest of the peninsula, mm-hmm. I guess. So that also makes me wonder. We know that a lot of Adesian um, gods and goddesses. Oh, wait. Okay. So I was just going to say that we know that um, a lot of gods and goddesses are based off of like springs or mountains. Mm-hmm. But that just made me think of um, we know the Arachthus is a god and the Arachthus River starts in Edis and flows into Atolia. So mm-hmm. that's part of why it's a it was a unified peninsular religion because these landmarks are in the other countries also. Like yeah, the Separchia yeah. also goes into Atolia. Maybe Sunus also? I don't remember. The borders are uh, constructed and yeah. are recent, as we've talked about before. Right. But the the way that these countries ultimately become unified isn't really out of a sense of irredentism. Of what? Uh, of, like, a belief that, like, we used to be, like, everybody used to be in some sense part of Edis, and so now they need right. to be part of Edis again. It's more of, uh, like, a, a, a unity based on a common ground and a common enemy. Yeah. And also, arguably, Atolia and Sunus are going into this uh, unification process, kicking and screaming, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's all, everything is always a, a mixed bag mm-hmm. of... <laughs> Of emotions and uh which is related to a really great underrated line in this chapter about eugenides which helen says which is he has to live with the fruits of his labors and sometimes finds them unsweet that's on page 129 also just to to unpack the first part of that quote too it's um do you mind i'm gonna read the whole quote oh yeah please do but um in his life, Eugenides has gone to great lengths to portray himself as a non-combatant, so people assume he is, and then it's, he has to live with the fruits of, of his labors. So I think the second part of that quote is just a really good sum up of he thinks he's getting what he, it's more, it's, that made me think of like the be careful what you wish for because you might just get it, mm-hmm. which is very fitting for him. <laughs> but that also made me think more about his relationship with violence is that he is a very good swordsman mm-hmm. and he's been training for his whole life but up until this point he's portrayed himself as a non-combatant and he's argued against joining the military he says he never wants to kill anyone 
but at the same time he does have that skill set so that was making me wonder is he portraying himself as a non-combatant as a ruse like i mean i think that really is his emotional opinion is that at like prior to this point in his life he truly did want nothing to do with killing but like was denying that skill set just an emotional like reaction to like no i don't want to do this but he was forced into it by his dad kind of or like i think that it's another example of a thing that jen does that uh he manages to do something that both allows him to adhere to his values and benefits him strategically Mm -hmm. he has that one-two punch yeah and now it's a little different because before the fact that he was portraying himself as a non-combatant it's something he did entirely by choice he could have been thought of publicly as a great swordsman if he had wanted to and now that it's about uh the loss of his hand suddenly the fact that people think that he can't defend himself is not something that he's in control of right and i think that that's a much more different emotional experience for him yeah Also in here, in uh, Edith's narration, it says, Eugenides had lately taken to raising just one eyebrow when he was amused, and Edith wondered who he was copying. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) It means so much to me that he imitates her. That's so telling. And it's like, at this point also, it's not later. It's this early on. Yeah. And like, it means that, like, he is thinking about her and the experience of being her and why she does what she does Mm -hmm. and like that way of 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 uh like relating to her that's based so much in empathy yeah i think is so interesting and really beautiful yeah and it's a way for him to like be close to her yeah in this situation where he can't be Mm -hmm. and where they're still enemies and they're still at odds, but he's still seeing her in this light. Yeah. I don't know if there's any listeners who don't realize it's a, this is about Atolia, but it's about Atolia. Yes. Just, <laughs> probably everyone knows, but maybe not. If Jen does something <laughs> weird, it's about Atolia. And speaking of stuff that's kind of about Atolia, we also have our story. So Edith tells the other two the myth of Spira and Horion. Which is that Hespira was a mortal girl and Horion was, uh, or potentially is because they may still be alive, uh, the son of the goddess Meridite and a blacksmith. And he lived in the caves under the sacred mountain as an armorer. Um, And he wanted a wife because he was lonely and Meridite found him one named Hespira, but he wanted a wife who would choose him. And Meridite thought no one would, so she tried to drug Hespira with the love potion, mm-hmm. but Hespira poured it into her basket and uh, she said, like, yes, I'll come with you to see your son and sing to him. They fell in love. All on their own. All on their own. Hespira's mother planted vines at the base of Meridite's temple to bring down the temple to get her daughter back. And then the two mothers went to collect Hespira and Hespira said that she chose Horion. And that she would stay with him. And that line, the, uh, I chose Hespera said again and Horion believed her, is directly mirrored later with the, and she believed him. Mm-hmm. There's 
also quite a lot about gender in this story. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, especially in uh, Maridides' viewing of Hispira and searching for a tractable wife for her son. Um, when Hispira is introduced, it says, She was also clever. If the goddess had looked beyond Hispira's beauty, she would have seen this, but she didn't look. And then later um, it says, So once Hispira has revealed that she tricked the goddess by pouring the drink out. It says, Looking at the girl carefully for the first time, she saw that she was not just pretty, but clever. Who wants a clever girl? Even the goddesses fall prey to these assumptions about gender. Mm-hmm. And there's an implication, sort of, that the gods are beyond human conceptions of gender and human gender roles. Where do you see that? Uh, I feel like the... Like, the goddesses have all of this inherent power mm-hmm. uh, that the women on Earth do not have. Right. They just don't have access to that. And the goddesses don't, uh, like, they don't seem to feel a particular kinship with human beings who are women mm-hmm. because they are also female. Like, there's not a... At least in this particular story, yeah, Meridite just assumes we need to find a girl and she needs to be pretty and mm-hmm. uh, she needs to be obedient and that's that. Yeah, and and, and that um, cleverness is a detractor. Yeah, and then of course both Hespera and her mother find a way to use what power they have in different ways. Attention is brought to this in the actual story too. Is that when Hespera's mother? Uh, tells Meridati, either I get his spirit back or I'm going to destroy your temple, Meridati was much taken aback. Mortals do not challenge the gods. Only once had one tried, and he had been driven insane for his insolence. There's also an element of perception in this story. The idea that everybody assumes that these two people would only want to be together if there was an element of trickery or force. Right. Um, But in the end, they actually do want to be together in a way that's uh, independent of everybody else's machinations, which is very relevant. Yeah. And for Horion, it's all about everyone assumes that because he is quote-unquote undesirable on um like in terms of looks that he, his inner life must be nothing and he has no other qualities. Mm-hmm. That would make him desirable, which is, I was just going to say that it's kind of an inverse to how Atolia is viewed in that she's beautiful on the outside. So people, men, mm-hmm. can be tricked by that into assuming. In a way that that's broadly linked to the way ableism works in this world, because there's such an emphasis on the body. Yeah. The final section of this chapter shows us both Atolia and Sunis finding out about Jen's latest shenanigans. And uh, Atolia is very calm about it. And then everyone leaves the room. And then she breaks everything in the room. <laughs> and then they come back and she's very calm again. And even... Uh- uh, the narration at the end of this this scene with her says that she's 
uh, she's trying to now assess the danger that Eugenides has become, which is like a cute little misdirection. Like, oh, you think you're angry just because he's a political danger? Like, girl, <laughs> he's sleeping with someone else. That's why you're mad. <laughs> also, the servants were careful not to creep in. The queen did not appreciate creeping. I wonder why that is. <gasps> and then Sunus is just a doof. His new magus is like trying to gently explain to him what's going on. He's like, what? He's too intellectual. <laughs> he what? <laughs> Eugenides did what? That's chapter nine. Next week, the war rages on and so do everybody's feelings. Send us your comments, questions, and thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, anywhere podcasts are available.